Thank you for tuning in to the Ubuntu People's Podcast. This is episode number 68, a conversation with Miss Thori Staples Bryan, a former player on the women's national team, played in the 1995 World Cup, was an All-American at North Carolina State University, was a two-time nominee for National Player of the Year. Today we talk about her experiences as a black female growing up playing soccer in this country from her start in her hometown in Maryland to the heights of the game in this country. We talk about what is the typical story of black soccer players in America, that you're the only one on the team. It's tough being solo. Her, Brianna Scurry, back then. And then now, looking at the current U.S. women's national roster where there are six black players. Is it progress? We talk about her life now. Retired pro, coach, mother to a 12-year-old playing soccer. What does she see in the youth game? And what does she see for players like Mallory Pugh, Kristen Press, and Crystal Dunn, who could be the future of American soccer. We even get into the fact that she was involved in the only fight ever involving the U.S. women's national team. You want to stick around for that. I'm here today with former NC State women's soccer legend, Thori Staples Bryant. From the Thori that I knew when we were at NC State, and this was 94, 95, quiet, reserved, like mouse quiet. That's what I remember, super athletic. I think you were voted the best female athlete at NC State for the, don't be, you're modest, but in 94, 95, I think you won best female athlete, am I correct? At the year in awards, come on, say it. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> At least one year you did. I remember winning something. I don't know if that was it. I think 94 you did. I remember her in 94. I don't remember her in 95, but there was a reason I don't remember you. You're probably busy playing with the women's national team at the World Cup in Sweden. Correct. So we're going to get into that. We're dealing with that sort of athlete, that sort of person. Uh, we're going to get into her experiences in soccer. I just had a conversation last two episodes with uh, Alan Sanchez, former NC State player, now coach, and also Mr. Kevin Larry about his experiences growing up in Mississippi playing soccer. So I wanted to talk about Thori's experiences as a black female matriculating through all the levels of soccer in this country and wreck all the way to starting 64 caps with the women's national team playing in the World Cup. I know you're modest, but Time to shine, Thori. Time to shine. When did your soccer journey start? Joppa Town, Maryland. It's a predominantly white suburban area. All of my friends in school said they were playing soccer and they were on this team and they're like, you should play on our team. They're like, we have oranges at halftime. And <laughs> orange slices, I forgot they were like orange slices. And popsicles at the end of the game. They sucker you in like yes, drugs, man. That's, so that's big time. I was like, I'm in, let's go. <laughs> that's all it took. I was 11 years old and I got on their team and uh, I just loved the action and everything. Instantly, I fell in love with the game. So age 11, for a lot of people, and we live in Raleigh, North Carolina now where I mean, it's a soccer crazy city. We have the biggest club, I believe, in North America. Twelve to 15,000 kids playing for NCFC. Soccer is ubiquitous here. It's like, it's like blood. It's like breathing air. These kids started three, four, five years old here. What was, not the delay, but what was the reason? You're also a phenomenal athlete, so my 
I'm assuming the answer is you were playing other stuff between age 7 and 11 years old. Yes. I was running track. I did that first as far as finding something competitively that I like. I started with track. So we're going to stop the modesty. You were a state qualifier in track in like 5,000 events. <laughs> so let's stop the modesty because we need to establish how dominant of an athlete you were. So when we talk about stuff later, folks recognize we're not just talking about some run-of-the-mill person. We're talking about an elite athlete here. So let's go through the list. In high school, you were a state qualifying what? Let's let's name them. Um, I, Come on, well, stop being here, modest. No, here's the problem. The problem is a terrible memory. I competed nationally and then high school, I know I did hurdles the mm -hmm. last year because that was part of my heptathlon training. Okay. I was doing the heptathlon. So I know I did the 110 hurdles, I think the 400 and the 800, maybe long jump. I'm not sure how I placed in each of those, but I know those are the events that I was doing. But were you, any, any of those were state championships? Yeah, probably at least the 800. At um, least, so there's more. Come on, name it out. Let's, I, I don't let's establish the dominance here. I don't remember. That's but the there problem. Were a couple. Yes. There were a couple. Yes. There are a couple of state championships. So again, you're, a, you're, you're of that caliber elite athlete. You were more coordinated than most of the, the kids when you joined the team. How easy was it for you? Were you just dominant? They just gave you the ball and bam, you're, you're scoring goals and it wasn't even wasn't even a challenge? I was dominant and being able to put myself in scoring positions. Then I was like, what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first problem. Once they did that, it was fairly easy because when you're playing kids that you're stronger than mm. and faster than, it makes it easier. Once I figured out the purpose of the game and how to play the game, it became a lot easier. The other thing I think with really good athletes, when you're a good person and also a good athlete, I think sometimes we hold ourselves in check because we know, okay, it's not his fault or her fault that they're not as good. So sometimes we don't try as hard. So did you ever find yourself almost like, <laughs> you ever seen the movie The Incredibles? The little boy and his superpower is speed, yeah. but his parents tell him just, no, 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 don't yeah, win, like, don't win, no. only win by a little, no, 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 no. Was it like that at any point? Once you got to 11, 13, going to teenagers, I bring that up because, and I remember Anson Dorrance saying, and he's the coach, legendary coach of um, UNC women's soccer, and also, I'm assuming you're national coach at, at some point. Yes. He was saying that in a situation where he's coaching girls and a new alpha girl comes into the mix, the like veteran girls, instead of sort of embracing her, kind of shun her. Because it's like, you think you're all that. I like, don't coach women's soccer players. But my thought going off of what this guy said is that, all right, so maybe a new young lady coming in situation, especially you, if you're a world-class athlete, which more or less you were, do you then have to go, all right, I got to hold myself back so that I don't upset the chemistry. And maybe not at age 11, but maybe 15, 16, when these social dynamics really come into play. Since I was so young... I wasn't looking at it like that. If I was in a new environment, my thing was always that they're better than I am. Because I hadn't been playing that long, because I didn't have the experiences that other people have, when I entered in a new environment, my thought was always, as far as soccer is mm -hmm. concerned, they're going to be better than I am. So I need to come in and find my place. I do remember a point when I was being recruited, I went to watch a game at Chapel Hill, because in my mind, they're all going to be better right. than I am. And when I saw the game, I was like, oh, I can play here. <laughs> like, this is not what I thought it was. I can play here. I can definitely play here. So I think I had enough confidence to know that once I saw mm -hmm. the situation, that I can compete. You have to balance that. You're not going to be arrogant. 
But in order to be a good athlete at the same time, you got to believe that you can compete with everybody. At any given time, you got to feel like that you can beat anybody that you're playing against. Otherwise, what's the point? Like, there's no point. If you don't believe that you can win or you can find a way to win, there's no point. Even if they're better in one area, you got to find out how you can be better. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into that a little bit later. I mean, your son is seventh grade now, and he's played the sport that you've you were incredibly dominant at, at your peak. So I was wondering about parents as well, parents of great athletes, Michael Jordan's son, now Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo or Zidane's son. How tough is it for them to kind of live up to, not even the expectations of the parents, because I think the parents are realistic about it, but it's the world's expectations about, oh my God, your mom, your dad was so great. You should be, or why aren't you, blah, blah, blah. So we'll get into that later. I also want to tease something. as. Wonderfully articulate in the sweet as she's saying here. I'm gonna tell you that I just found this out this morning. Thori Staples, Brian, wonderful sweet person, at one point, headlocked another player on the field. Headlocked another player on the field and almost choked her. So we're gonna get into that later. We're gonna tease that, but we're gonna we're gonna find out why you did that. We're gonna why you did that. No, 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 don't don't, don't say nothing now. No, 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 don't say nothing now. We're going to get it. They got to they gotta keep listening. I just found this out this morning. I'm telling you, I was scouring YouTube because I want to see the footage. But there's no footage because it was destroyed. It was destroyed. No. destroyed. You went out there and had computer people. Because I think it was 1990. Was it 1995? It could have been. Somewhere. I got it out. Montreal. March 11th, 1993. Oh. Montreal, Canada Montreal. versus Trinidad. So I'm just going to tease that. I wanted to. Why did Thori have to choke up? Yeah. We're gonna talk about it. We're gonna talk about that. <laughs> no. And a little bit more. They don't know how you like it. Once you saw, for example, UNC is the standard. UNC soccer at that time is the standard. You know, it's it's more competitive now, I think, but it was clearly the standard. UNC was basically the women's national team for what the first. 10, 15 years of the national yes. team program. Uh-huh. And the national team program, women's national team, started in 1985. So you saw them, you recognized that you could compete against them. And you also recognized that you have to hold yourself a certain way. And I know it's not at 11, maybe not at 12, and maybe it's later on. But did the fact that you were the black female on the team, and I don't know how many there were. How many were there on the club team, for example? One. The entire, your entire history? Well, of at one point we had two. That was the most I ever did that ever growing up like dawn in on you that I have a responsibility to act a certain way or be a certain way because I'm the only one like this that these people see and I don't want them to see whatever they think about it. Because I get the feeling and this is why we're communicating now. The last couple of years, I'm not saying that I hate this word woke. People use it a lot, but I'm like, Thori's ready to talk. She's been quiet for 20 years. <laughs> what has she been thinking? But you're in these situations where it's just you. And so sometimes you're privy to conversations or people overlook or forget that you are black. And then they say some shit. Or you're not like them. Right. You, right. Oh, we're going to get into that. You're the exception. You're the good Negro. Did that start dawning in on you? For a lot of people, awareness comes later once you live a certain way and experience a certain thing. I think... And how do I say this? You're aware, but you're not aware that you're aware. So it's kind of like, at the time, I realized that I have to act a certain way, I have to say certain things, and I have to be a certain standard. But I'm not fully aware 
why I feel okay. like I have to be that way. And it's almost like a double life being in my soccer environment and then being in my track environment. They're like complete opposite ends of the spectrum. My track practices were at Baltimore across from Mandalman Mall, which at this point is like... Is it the black mall? Every city has a white mall and a black mall. Is it the but, black mall? Well, Baltimore, everything's black. black. But this mall, at this moment, has armed security guards around it today. It's a rough area. And it wasn't like that then, but it was still a rough area. But you go from this almost completely black track team to this almost completely white soccer team. So I'm in two completely different environments day to day because I'm doing both the entire time I'm growing up. Felt like I'm living a double life because I have to be this way when I'm with my soccer team and then when I'm with my track team, I have to be this way. I can't be the girl that's trying to be white. Did the track girls look at Because the thought is every black soccer player growing up, they had me playing the white sport. Was that ever a conversation with the track girls or they just knew a lot of times dominance gets you out of those because people just look at you that's your story she's good she's a different kind of person so just let her be did the track girls because my assumption is in terms of who you are looking in the mirror every day those are the people you identify with and then want validation for most so the track family was more of a family it was a team as family so i mean they might razz me about it a little bit it was joking. just joking okay. it wasn't ever a serious trying to make me feel bad right. about it i think they respected it they were cool about it but it was just like a lot of people don't play soccer i'm like you know this is what i enjoy and they were cool with that you know they would still make fun of me jokingly but you know we all got along for the most part that wasn't a big concern or a big deal so a hundred years ago w.e.b du bois called it double consciousness living black but being aware of an outside perception of you all the time and then almost subconsciously changing yourself like you said before you even know it today we call it maybe code switching being able to have a certain jargon with the track ladies in baltimore and then recognizing that you have to i mean how but people don't understand there's a tax man that is just mentally <laughs> it is. It i'll is. say the mentally effing exhausting it is we're not saying it's debilitating but it's still an exhausting thing trying to go all right, now I, now I have to be this way. Right. How was that, navigating that? And did you ever recognize that it was kind of, it's this extra thing that I got to do, man? You kind of look back mm -hmm. at the time. I was pretty tunnel focused mm -hmm. on what I wanted to do. So there wasn't a lot of lay time to think about stuff. So I didn't really think about stuff until I started looking back. <laughs> it was exhausting, but I think just being black is right. exhausting. Like, I don't care what you're doing. It's exhausting being black in America.
The things you have to think about, right. things you have to try and learn to deal with, um, it's exhausting. The things your parents are explaining to you, why you can't do this, why you have to do this, why you have to be careful doing this, like all of it is exhausting. So I think it just goes into everything else that you deal with growing up, um, just trying to with a young mind trying to grasp and understand why things are the way they are and how to deal with them appropriately. Shake in your face, you're a superstar. Niggas hang around cause of who you are. You get a lot of love cause of what you got. Say they happy for you, but they really not. You said tunnel vision, and again, the best thing about athletes, especially elite athletes. You're all able to focus in like track stars. It's my lane, this is what I want to do. The best, most accomplished people in any field have that. We admire them for that. And you said, obviously going through it, you're just thinking that. At what point did you start going, yeah, that was taxing, that was weary. <laughs> And I know it's happened the last couple of years because I see you on Facebook. <laughs> so was it the last few years and what was the thing that you said, wait a second, I experienced some black shit growing up. I don't know if it's kind of like <laughs> where dramatic things happen and you right. push them out of your mind and then they all just start coming back and you're like, wait a minute, these things, they might not have happened if I wasn't who I was. Like I said, Everything that's a distraction or negative has to be pushed out of my mind in order for me to accomplish what I have to accomplish. So at the time, it's like, I can't give time to it. I can't give another second to it because I have to do this. This is what I'm going to do regardless of what you say, regardless of what you think. Growing up, just growing into a woman mm -hmm. in my 40s, as you're progressing and thinking about all these things, having a child, I mean, I think that definitely has done more to bring out awareness of what happened than anything else. Because you want for your kids, like, you want to protect them. You want to warn them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just, you don't want them to experience the bad things that you did. So you just try and give them warnings and try to prepare them for that moment right. when they find out they're black. So what was the moment? I think the biggest moment, I was with my all-black track team and we're in Spokane, Washington. And middle of this downtown or it's probably 50 of us we've gone right. down there to try and find the blacks are coming the right. blacks are coming spread and the news you would have thought like world war three was breaking out the way these people were reacting to us and how old are you i'm probably about 15 okay. so i'm getting awareness now of what's going on and it was just eye-opening because so you're walking down, you see people reactions, clutching, okay. you know, their purses, closing doors, yes, looking, look, staring. all of that. Serious. All of that. Wow. I think it was sad more than anything because you're like, as far as you think the world has come, at that point as a 15-year-old, it, it made me sad. Like, you know, it really made me sad more than anything else. All of that, like, you, you deal with it, you internalize some of it, 
like I said, because you have to stay focused. So did it fuel, do you figure it fueled your performance in both track and soccer? Soccer, definitely. Why, why definitely? Because I always felt like I had something to prove, you know? And track it is what it is, it's, you know, it's individual, you're competing, you're, whatever I do is on me. Right. Soccer is subjective, you know, of how you're doing or whatever. So I always feel like I have something to prove. I started this interview with Miss Story Staples Bryant. Touting your athletic accomplishments through high school, and obviously you made the national team. Played uh, had 64 caps. That means she made 64 appearances with the women's senior national team starting in 1993. One goal. One goal. Defender. <laughs> so it had to be a header. It had yes, to be a header. Of course, it was a header. It had to be a header. So we talked about some of your experiences there that you were eventually cut. 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 That's the word. Cut. <laughs> That's probably the first team you've ever been cut from in your life, so I know it's stung. But let's 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 work up to there. So high school, obviously, state champion athlete. Everybody recognizes that. Lucky enough to get invited to North Carolina. Oh, he came, to, he came to my house. He came to your house. So you were heavily recruited. So give us give us the five schools, the top five schools okay. that, in the high school. They were NC State, mm-hmm. UNC, Rutgers, UVA, and that was it. That's where I took my four visits. Okay, so all ACC schools, more or less. What was the reason NC State? Why? Why the Wolfpack? I actually liked NC State growing up. I was watching NC State basketball, you know. I like Jimmy B. We used to have a track meet at NC State every year. So I was coming to NC State every year, and it seemed like a, a cool place. So that's why. When I got to NC State in 94, again, you were a junior, and I played my freshman year with Ian Hooper. Canadian, whose sister Charmaine Hooper played as. Did you play with Charmaine or that? I was did the, not. But did I you know you. about Charmaine? Yes. Yes. So and, and I, I had this argument with uh, Kevin on my last episode that he was at UNC when Crystal Dunn was there, and he was saying Crystal Dunn is the greatest women's soccer player of all time. Anybody before that would say Mia Hamm, and you can just pick a list of anybody that went to UNC. But legend is Charmaine Hooper was the best soccer women's she soccer player. Is I mean, she was amazing. What made her different? And did you play against her? You must have played against I, yeah, her. Yeah, I played against her in the pro league. I mean, <laughs> the good thing about Charmaine is there was a switch. Once she was playing, mm-hmm. that switch was on, and that's it. Every time I played Charmaine in the pro league, she was going to take me down from behind. Every Whoa! Time. Every time. So she was ultra-physical? Yes! It was just a switch. Once she was on the field... She was on the field. There was no in-between and all that, which I admired about her. She was amazing, like prolific goal scorer. She was strong. I mean, one of the strongest players I've ever seen. She had it all. So that's what set her apart was just her mentality. She was going to do whatever it took. Some players, you know, they're willing, but not all the way willing. Day in, day out, every time she stepped on the field, that was what you were going to get. And you knew that. And I wish people would go out and I know there are clips of, they have to be clips of her. Have to be. Playing. So go out, Charmaine 
Hooper, really dominant player in the 90s. She had a long stretch with Canada because yes. there's basically nobody else. Yeah, no. So she had to do it. And the, the comparison in terms of the stories that people told me, and the fact that you and Charmaine were the only women's players I ever heard play pickup with the men. I didn't even want to play pickup with my <laughs> I team know. Because they would blame me. They would come after, they're trying to toughen us up and just basically try to hurt us. They're trying to break ankles, literally. You yes. and Charmaine were the only two when they talk about you and Charmaine, it's like they're talking about one of us. So the comparison for me with Charmaine, and now that I'm, I'm trying to picture the big hair in the 80s, the, the, red, <laughs> the red and white shirt, is like a Serena. A Serena Williams, just in terms of physical dominance, yes. but also technical facility. Yes. You know, yes. I can do the technique. And I say that because, and we're going to get into the national, the national team now and when you were growing up, I think one of the disservices they do with black players is they either put us up top or in the back because we're athletes yes. and they don't give us an opportunity to develop technical. the technical stuff but Correct. Shemaine had it all yes. and so I think for a lot of people she doesn't get the do because oh she was playing for Canada and the U.S. was dominant at the time but it's also intimidating you don't know what to do with that right you don't know what I mean I say that I would go to my grave saying Mia Hamm was great because she was fast not because she was greatly technical I know you can't get into it because that's your buddy and to me no knock against women's soccer. But if you have a, a little bit better athletic ability or speed in women's soccer, you will dominate. That's just what I've seen. Debate me on that. Okay, I guess you're not, so you agree. But So, so you come down to NC State, but before that you'd made the national team. or would No, you? When, once I got to NC State. Okay. So Anson was for me to go to UNC, um, and... I didn't go there. Recruiting was crazy back then, so I know it's got to be Tell the story. Then. Tell some stories. Well, Tell some recruiting stories. Well, just, you know. They promised you a car. No. They, they, they gave your mom $40,000 under yeah, the table. So that's what that new Audi out there is from 1994. That is a 94 Audi. So did, that, did, did somebody give that to you? That's why you're selling it now? Because you don't want the NCAA to de facto come don't back at you me. and retroactively take away your, your Play of the Year nominations and all that stuff. No, I mean, it was just, it was a little overwhelming for like a kid. I mean, I was still a kid and you're fielding all these calls and you know, my parents are like, you need to talk to them. If you don't want to go somewhere, you need to tell somebody because you know, you're going to be an adult. This is your decision. So I do all that. I sort through, I get to my final four, I take my visit. That was all crazy. Trying to figure out where I wanted to go because the best opportunity would be to go to the best place because if you can become dominant at UNC, then... You got it you know, made on the national team. Correct. So, I mean, that was that choice. I liked it at NC State. I mean, just the contrast of the visits. When I went to UNC, it was cold. My teammate was at UNC, so she was my host, but she was studying. So her roommates took me out. They lost me. Yeah, so I'm in the bar at 17 and lost. And I saw some guys that they introduced me from some fraternity so I was like um can you take me to their house wow. and so I go with random guys and they took me back to their frat house because they were having a party we were like yeah yeah we'll take you so anyway I finally got home after that debacle to back to her place and it was cold and rainy that entire weekend next weekend I go to NC State it's 80 degrees <laughs> This is December in North Carolina, right? It was divine intervention. It was 80 degrees. Thank you, Jesus. It was sunshine. <laughs> People were out, you know, having picnics. Everybody's speaking to me. Don't, you know, they don't know me, but it's it's how they are. 
So I was like, wow, it's really nice over here. I get the warm and fuzzies. So um, that was that. UVA, I got to meet Don Staley, which I love. Gotcha. Also, basketball player for anybody who doesn't know. Yeah. Legendary basketball player. And coach right now. And coach right now. National uh, champion right now in yes. South Carolina. Mm-hmm. That was my big thing. Because I was like, do you think I can meet You played Don basketball Staley? too, bro? I did. You did, okay. Yeah. So I was like, you think I can meet Don Staley? And they were like, oh, yeah, we can arrange it. So I got to meet her and talk to her. And that was cool. But just the vibe of UVA being aristocratic, I was totally turned off. I was like, I need to speak to the black people here. Because I wanted to know what the black experience was like. You know, and she's like, um, okay. And so I met with some track people and basketball people because, you know. Nobody in the women's soccer team. Right. right. And I was just getting the vibe that uh, I wouldn't like it very much there. They were being honest or you were reading into what they were not saying? They were honest up to a point. Okay. So I was reading into gotcha. what they were not saying. Okay. So that's why I didn't go there. And then Rutgers, I thought I wanted to go there, but then realized very quickly that I didn't want to go there. When you went back, I'm sure your mom and dad were livid. I don't know if you ever told them. Oh, so they're fighting out now. Oh my God, they're fighting out right now. They oh. would have had a, are you kidding me? My grandfather's a minister. Okay. If they found out they lost me and left me in a bar <laughs> and I went to some random frat house with dudes I didn't know, gotcha. really? No, my mom doesn't know a lot that I've mentioned. I drop morsels now and I'll be like, Uh-oh. remember this? Uh oh. This happened a long so, time ago. So okay, so I'm sorry you had to find out this sorry, way. Mom. But 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 it happened. Speaking of the parents, now you said obviously during the process there you're confiding in them trying to make the right decision. But with all the other like personal stuff, young woman, young black woman going through that, dealing with soccer, did you feel comfortable talking to them about that or is it something that was so unique for you they they had no way of understanding? It was difficult because part of this, and I didn't mention this. But part of the problem was they wanted me to run track too. I should have been on track to be competing to qualify for the Olympics in the heptathlon. So they wanted me to run track. They didn't want me to stop running track. I wanted to do soccer. So there was a bit of a conflict. And they're like, well, can she be on the track team too if she wants to? Oh, at state? I was supposed to run the track my freshman year at state. But that's when I got called into national team camp. And I was like, if I'm going to be trying to compete for the national team and coming into camp, I cannot do the track team as well because I'm already missing time. What was that first call like, the call up for the national team? Because, again, in doing some research, I got to find out a bunch of stuff about you. This particular fight that I'm going to keep teasing. <laughs> she got in a fight. She was choking a Trinidadian girl in Montreal on March 11th, 1993. She did it. And we're going to talk about it later on. But I was doing a little research about African-American females. And I, realized, I found out that Kim Crab yes. was the first. Kim Crab and Sandy Gordon. Kim Crab was the first and Sandy Gordon came right after like 86 87. I think Crab was like from your neck of the woods, up there in Maryland somewhere or Northern Virginia or somewhere. She played at George Mason, winning the national championship. But she was talking about the excitement of getting that faxed letter or getting a packet in the mail from the national team. This is the expectation. This is the workout, blah, blah, blah. So had you played on like you 17, you 18, were you working your way up or you got to college and, and Anson goes, holy shit. 
or he's a freaking athlete. She needs to be on the national team. So you hadn't gone no the typical team, route. No, no, Nothing. No. Because you didn't girl, have time because of well, track? Well, I was or? doing track, yes. Okay. So I never did any of that stuff. No regional team, no state team. Which is unusual in this day and age. It is. You don't it get. It is. It's like getting to the NBA from, well, I guess you could get to the NBA from high school. Even the NBA players that make it from high school, they've been on highly selective AAU teams since the, people have known them since the second, since the seventh seventh grade or something like that. Mm -hmm. So what was that like? And how does that happen? Does Anson call you? Is Anson the the coach of the national team at that point? He was the coach. I'm trying to remember. I do know I got the packet. The legendary packet. And at the time, the packet says, you know, Adidas is a sponsor. You have to wear Adidas and da-da-da. So I'm panicking because I don't have Adidas. And I don't know that they're going to give me Adidas. (laughs) So you thought you had to go buy Adidas gear. So I'm like, Mom, we got to get we're not buying Adidas shoes. We are not. They're like, you know, $100 or okay. whatever they were at the time. So they're like, uh, Robin on your team has some Adidas shoes. Borrow hers. Wow. So I borrow the girl on my team's shoes that are like a half size to a hot size too big to go into national team camp. So I'll have Adidas shoes. Of course, when I get there, I'm wearing the shoes. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing people getting brand new shoes. And I'm like, how are they getting shoes? Like, <laughs> you just have to tell us what your size is and you get shoes. Everybody? <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, yes. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I'm trying to play it cool. Like, oh, okay, this is how it works. I do that. I'm not telling them that I'm wearing my borrowed right, 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 right. shoes at that point. Yeah, that was my first camp. I come in with Where my teammates' it? shoes. Boca Raton, Florida. And again, you're how old at this point? 18. So. You guys are there for how long in preparation for what? There was no game. It was just a training camp. I think we were there three or four days. It might have been three or four days. So no. give us a skinny for the people who are never going to get to that level. You okay. get there. It's like two days, three days. It's just uh, running like hell competitive. Oh, yeah. Somebody in your ear, what are you doing, Brian? Get your hands <laughs> off your hips. So the first day, it's running fitness, lace up, get warmed up. Okay, this is what we're doing. We're doing fitness. And um, I have no idea. I've never done this type of fitness before mm-hmm. in my life. So I just remember Christine Lilly is like, listen, just touch the line and turn. You don't have to go all the way. You know, <laughs> she's like, just touch it and turn with your foot. She's telling me this as we're running. And she was the best. And I was just like spent because I thought you had to go all out okay. each time, which I don't know. You have to pace yourself because I've never done it. I don't mm-hmm. know how many. So needless to say, I was dying. And this wasn't just to make people are throwing up everything. He's like, ah, you'll pass out before you die. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's like, okay, where am I at this point? I'm terrified anyway, because again, I'm assuming everybody's better than right. me. I got to figure out how to come in here and gauge where I am. First day was a blur. I remember that. I remember really not speaking to anybody because I have to assess the situation. <laughs> and figure it out. I'm quiet anyway by nature until I really get to know you because I need to find out what's going on. I do remember gaining confidence after we played and some other stuff just seeing I was able to compete. It was good to get out there and see because this was right after the World Cup was in 91. So I watched all of that in high school and then to get invited in that next year, that was like, whoa. Like, this is amazing, you know?
now I have to try and take advantage of it and try not to screw it up. Maybe the first six months to a year, did you go just like you did at UNC? I can handle this. And I've learned to pace myself and all that stuff. So how long did it take you to get comfortable? I'm gonna go, I belong here. Well, I guess it was like, so after the first camp and I got invited back, I was like, okay, well, I must've done something right. And so it was kind of like after those first couple, I was like, oh yeah, I can compete. I can do this. Um, you know, I'm figuring things out. It's not as difficult as I thought it was going to be once you get everything sorted out. I mean, it's hard. Yeah, never gonna say it was easy, but I can handle it, so. What was the day-to-day -day like? The word is the imposter syndrome. I've heard this word before. I have, a, I have a friend who's a professor, black woman, PhD. She's gone as high as you can go in education. Renowned, writing papers, scholarly articles and things like that. And I've also heard it from other areas, particularly minorities, when you're someplace and the perception from the outside, it has to seep in that people don't think you belong, right? So you start figuring this imposter syndrome, like you don't think you belong. You do, you're doing everything but you don't think you belong. Was that part of it? And did you get over that? Because so, so how was the day-to-day the -day interaction, like talking to Christine Lilly? And just go over a list of, basically anybody who ends up playing on the renowned 1999 team, give us a name so people know you. Christine Lilly, Mia Hamm. Michelle Akers. Michelle Akers. Karen Vera, I mean, all these people. Foudy, all those people. Julie Foudy, okay. I mean, all these people were there. team did a really good job like they had a core foundation of leadership that went out of their way to make it a team mm -hmm. and make everybody like kind of feel welcome especially when they had younger people coming in they did a good job of trying to encourage people and trying to make sure that everybody understood that it was a team that nobody was higher or lower that type of thing so I mean that was that was, they did a really good job with that. So. How was Mia? That was, she seemed like a quiet person. Yeah. Even quieter than you. <laughs> she, she was quiet. But it's just quiet confidence. I know I can do this. Y'all know I can do this. I don't have to say shit. No, I think it's just that she was a quiet person. Like, she was more to herself. But not like being antisocial. Not like... Right. Okay. Right. So who's the jokester? Tell us some stories. Who's the jokester? Well, I think Fowdy's probably <laughs> the jokester of the group. She was always shenanigans. Who's the person you didn't want to mess with? Like there's sometimes a player shows up to practice and they read that everybody's goofing off and they'll just, as a soccer player, just make a tackle on somebody to wake everybody. Look, we're getting ready to go to freaking Sweden. They're coming after us. Who was that? I'm assuming Michelle Akers. Who was yeah, that? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, I still remember having like but I would come home with ball imprint in my leg from, you got two choices. If you step in front of her, mm -hmm. you're gonna get whacked. Because <laughs> I wasn't gonna let her score, you know? So I would come home 
Like it would last for a couple of days, a ball imprint. That's how hard she hit the ball. When did you get your first cap and what was that like? Do you remember that? I do not. Oh my, I said, I'm not gonna do that much research. Story, she's gonna not. give you the stories about her first cap. Oh, think back right now. I'm gonna give you 10 seconds to remember, maybe not the first, but the first couple of games. One of the first couple of games, come on. I'll just give you my most memorable one. I think it was in Atlanta, somewhere in Georgia, and we were playing Germany, and I started, so this might have been my first start. Okay. And I just remember looking around like, holy crap, I'm actually doing this. This is happening right now. There's no time to be like in the moment, so it's like, all right, snap out of it, it's time to play. I was just like looking around, because it was packed wherever we were. I mean, at that time, it's 5,000 people, mm -hmm. that's what we were playing in. And I remember just being like, wow, this is it. Like, this is the moment. And then it was back to business. Because when you play, it's like, there can be thousands of people, but you don't hear them. People who don't play or never played at a high level, they never understand it. They've seen the game from the crowd perspective. I never played at that level, but I've played on my country's national team. I've played in El Salvador in front of 50, 60,000 people. You don't hear it. I don't know how to explain it to people. Yeah, you can't. It, you, when you're coming in on the bus, they're throwing shit at the bus. You, you know what I'm saying? You see yeah. the pregame throwing batteries at you, whatever. You hear that. But once you start playing, and I think it's that tunnel vision that we just, you said Charmaine is able to click it on, yeah. or Michelle Akers in practice, all right, we're ready to go. Or you snapping out of that moment in Atlanta going, all right, I got to play. I know how to play this game. It's still soccer. And that's all you want to do. It's soccer. The 70,000 yeah. fans, I'm sorry to say, that's for y'all. Like, I, I always look at specifically NBA players because it's just so close and right there after a championship. The celebration is for their teammates. It's for nobody else yeah, because exactly. they know what they've been through for that entire year. And, like, I remember distinctly Kobe Bryant when he won in Orlando against the Magic and he's jumping up exactly like Jordan. Mm -hmm. But I realized nobody's coming around him. So he's by himself. And then I, I realized like five minutes later, he just had this look on his face like, okay, guess what? I guess that's it. That's What's it. next? That's it. You know, like what? It's a momentary thing. Yeah. And it's something like looking back, you can celebrate with your teammates. Great teams can always come back and know we were champions. But in the moment, you're just playing the game. You're just playing the game so that's what that was that feeling always there because the pressure on the women's national team was great like you were the brazil of women's soccer brazil for men's soccer is the standard everybody comes out to watch them play when you traveled overseas did you get that sense that obviously it wasn't like rock star status like they probably are now but did you get that sense one that People came out to watch you. People oh, yeah. came out to beat oh, yeah. you. They and were, you had to... Yeah. I mean, the people would... I mean, for the most part, every country, they would be surrounding our bus. They appreciated more at that time than the U.S. did. Because if you think about it, nobody was really coming to watch right. us play until that World Cup. Right. So, like I said, we're playing 5,000 people. We go other places and there's like 10,000 people. There's lots of people. There's people following our bus. There's people following us. When I played the World Cup in Sweden, we were in a small town called Yabla. We were there for like three weeks before the World Cup started. Mm -hmm. So they kind of adopted us. We would go out. They knew all of who we were. They knew everything. And they knew our results. Even though Sweden was in the World Cup, they were like, well, we want your team to win. And I was like, really? what? Really? <laughs> you probably shouldn't be 
saying that too loud. <laughs> so it was just crazy. Even in that era, first of all, I think international travel is incredible. If you have access to the people, I'm sure now they don't. Like we were able to go about mm-hmm. freely. I would just interact with people. And that was more of an education for me than any education I've gotten through reading or anything like that. That was the best education I've ever had. Getting other people's culture and being able to interact with people freely in their culture was amazing. What was the most memorable place to visit in all your soccer travels with the team? I have one because of its natural beauty, which is Cyprus. I love going really? back to Cyprus. I loved Cyprus. Nobody ever mentions like Cyprus or anything like that. So we, <laughs> we used to about play Cyprus? there every year. Okay. We had a tournament there every year and we would play there. All right. Did y'all go there for a vacay? You went there, you beat somebody 12-0. <laughs> and let's go to the beach that nobody knows we're here. It was beautiful. So that's what it was. So it was a It was a vacation. It was a vacation. Hey, we were playing soccer. It was a vacation. Um, I loved going to Brazil. And of course, I would go somewhere and... You know, because they have lots of black people mm. in Brazil. So they would start speaking to me, and I'm like, I, no I don't know what you're talking I about, dude. don't know what you're saying. <laughs> and they'd look at me a little bit weird, and then they start speaking to me in English. I just felt like, hey, this place, it's a cool vibe. I can gel with the people here. I feel accepted. So I really enjoy going in Brazil. Pink peppers, but I rock rhymes uh, One, two, three, four, several times uh, Heavy rotation played by every kind uh, Radio station blessing every mind uh, We cross the boundaries like every day We walk it, Bobby, Bobby, be in the on the bay We got, we got Tab magnification, tab magnified like every day uh, Yes, yes, y'all You know we never stop, we never rest, y'all The black of music keep the funky fresh China! China was interesting Very interesting because I guess there's not a lot of black people. No, there ain't. <laughs> but they would come and they would do this. Right in your face. They would just stare at you. But I get it. If we're, yeah. if you're the only person, right. then you're exceptional, you're different, and people want to stare and gawk. So, and then, and this is what I'm talking about, being a black female soccer player in this country. It is, I think, that sort of experience, like when it, where you are, without even knowing it or without even helping it, without even trying to be it, you just are like a billboard. Yes. On the national team, when you're traveling, did that become even more apparent? Or again, are you just tunnel vision? I'm just playing soccer, man. I'm just playing soccer. It's funny when you're traveling because we would just start making stuff up at the end of the day because we always got, oh, you must run track. And if you don't run track, then you must play basketball. I want to go back to something you said um, earlier. You said when you were playing for the national team, folks in the United States didn't appreciate or recognize what y'all were doing. And when you went outside this country, it was apparent people knew how sort of superstar y'all y'all were. What was the talk in the locker room about that? Were y'all waiting for that one moment? All right, U.S. Women's National Team wins the first World Cup in 91? Yes. You guys won the first Women's World Cup in 1991. And so was there a thought, all right, that's going to be the one that gets us over the hump, but it doesn't quite do it. And so you're on the team, 92, building up to 99, 94, 95, 96. Yeah, we had the World Cup in 95. We got third. Was there talk of that was disappointment because now women's soccer is going to take a step back? There was always talk about the impact on the game. Like I said, those women, and they'll never get credit for 
the barriers that they broke and the fights that they had, they will never get the credit they deserve. Because what they did was incredible. The entire time that core group, they were fighting for rights for the women's team to be paid. The same thing with the equipment, the amount of staff, all of that. We never had as much as the men. Facilities they had to fight for. We always toted all of our equipment. The actual team members did. They have people to do that. We toted all the equipment. There's big cases about as long as this table, this time, we would have two and three people toting them, loading them on the buses, all this stuff. I mean, they fought to get massage staff. We finally got massage staff. So all this stuff that we ever got, they were fighting for. And had they not been doing that the entire time, I don't think a lot of those changes would have been made as quickly as they were. And the impact they would have on the game, the impact of being role models for young girls, all of that was always a constant running theme in what we were doing. So I don't think there was like times of down or up. They were doing that the entire time because they knew the impact they could have for the sport here and there. So World Cup 95 finished third. Um, at that point, that's when I, I kind of know you at NC State. And I'm gonna go back again. Let people know how legendary and good a soccer player you are. In 94 and 95, you were a candidate for the Herman Missouri National Player of the Year Award. So let's just go back and I need to remind people how good Thory was as a player. How disappointed was it in that next cycle, 95 to 99, watching your friends, the people that you sort of built this thing with, all of a sudden get the acclaim and get the shine and they're out in the open and Chastain takes off her shirt and it's a Nike commercial and everybody loves these people and they're on Wheaties boxes and everything, but you're not part of that. How devastating is that? And women, the rhythm of the realness. Still I'm legend like Will Smith. In the presence of the fake, I am a real gift. Open it, open it, it'll be something dope in it. Moving other people get emotion sick. We ride on the highs and the lows of it. On the south side, we got holes for it. Standing up like Rich Pryor, we get fire and inspired by the prospect to get higher. Your sire on the throne, grew up around the stones, the ranger, so I stand alone. Again, if I didn't feel like I should have been there, it w I guess it would have been easier, right. you know? But I think everything happens for a reason. So at the end of the day, um, you know, I don't have any regrets. I don't harbor any resentment or anything like that. Did you call the no. ladies? So there has to be something, Thori. Come no, on, no, you don't call I mean, your friends and say, congratulations, y'all just did this wonderful thing. I know how hard we worked for this. Uh, so there had to be something, come on. No, not really. I mean... Had you distanced yourself from them at that point? Like, 
there's few people I call friends. Okay. Let's just, I mean, that's just... Your nature. Yeah, so there's few people I call friends, and there's few people I stay in touch with. So it's not that I'm dissing you. I just, that's just how I am. Gotcha. So it's not like I would stay in touch with you unless we really connected on a level. I call people friends that I connect with on a certain level. Mm -hmm. I'm cool with everybody. We're just not friends. Do you understand what I'm saying? I understand. It's not that I don't like you, but I have to really like you in order for you to be my friend. The irresistible appeal of black individuality. Where has all of that gone? The very people who blazed our paths to self-expression and pioneered a resolutely distinct and individual voice have too often succumbed to mind-numbing sameness and been seduced by simply repeating what we hear, what somebody else said or thought, and not digging deep to learn what we think or what we feel or what we believe. Now, it is true that the genius of African culture is surely its repetition, but the key to such repetition was that new elements were added each go-round. Every round goes higher and higher. Something fresh popped off the page or jumped from a rhythm that had been recycled through the imagination of a writer or a musician. Each new installation bore the imprint of our unquenchable thirst to say something of our own. In our so time, time changes people. You're a mom, you're a wife, and being able to look back and see, okay, these things did happen, this is how I felt about them not only in Maryland growing up, at NC State with the women's national team, at this point now, looking at the national team program now, and we actually started a conversation during the World Cup in Canada. We went back and forth about this, maybe about the diversity of the team then. Sydney LaRue might have been the cheddar box. Yeah, she's mixed. I don't know, yeah. I, hate to, I, hate, I hate to qualify that by saying she's it mixed, is. but yeah. no, she's mixed, and Sydney LaRue's kind of mixed too, yeah. maybe. And I can't remember, was there anybody else? Crystal Dunn was too, would have been too young at that point, right? I don't so we go from we go from Kim Crab and and uh, Sandy Gordon in eighty seven in eighty six eighty seven to now current women's national team roster Crystal Dunn who's playing right here in Raleigh mm -hmm. Kristen Press Mallory Pugh Casey Short Taylor Smith Lynn Williams one two three four five six hooray <laughs> we made it, there's, we made it. <laughs> top of the world Bob. top we of the made world. It. There's six. Have you seen them play? What is your vibe now? I know you keep it. I've I mean, seen a couple of them play. Okay. What do, you, what do you think about them? I actually went training when I was out there last year. Um, I don't really think much has changed. Just to be quite honest. Wow. The numbers. Well, but there's there's more numbers out there. So you got to put that in perspective. They're carrying more as well. You know what I'm saying? But who's actually starting? I wasn't going to say that. I'll wait for you to say that. <laughs> I'm just saying. You're paying attention. Who's starting? Well, I mean, again, I got into the discussion with with um, with Kevin because he was at UNC when Crystal Dunn was there, and I remember Crystal Dunn came on my radar probably last year. And I might have mentioned something to you. I'm looking at these tapes and going, she is freaking phenomenal. But then I noticed that she was either again they do the black thing for soccer players. They put you in the back or put you up top. And I'm going, she's smart. She should be wearing number ten, running your team. I'm not putting anybody under the bus, but I looked at the last Women's World Cup again. No shade intended. But I'm not impressed with the women's soccer team as players. I'm not. Skill-wise, I prefer to look at France or Japan. France should have won. France won. France oh my goodness. France should have easily okay, won the World so Cup. so I watched the last one and I was like, man, I like them. I would love to go over there. Let's go. I would love to go over there. <laughs> if you play, if you and, play. And, and uh, 
just be able to watch some of their training. It's with. technique mixed with what they want black players in this country to be. Physical specimens, yes. and the girls can touch the That's ball. That's why I loved it. That's why I loved the it. The Japanese have technique, but they don't have they, physicality. Yeah, and they're, yeah, it's a bit But France, I mean, they should have been they, a cakewalk. I don't know who yeah. they lost to, but they should, I'm like, they're gonna beat everybody. I, I love that French team. So what's the deficiency here in the US? It's like, well, we have athletes. We have a couple of different problems, in my opinion. Okay, speak I'll on always, it, speak on it! We're I'll in church. always preface it by, this is just my opinion. First, the leadership. Because even when I was there, I would see players that I was like, she's way better than I could count. Right. So again, you're dealing with a subjective system, looking for different things. I think your leadership has a lot to do with how your system's being run. Even now, with all this craziness they got going on. And maybe it'll work, maybe I'm wrong, but I think the academy for the women is awful. Why? For a couple different reasons. Um, girls are different than boys. First of all, there's lots of injuries right now. Kids are blowing their knees out at 12, and I think that's a problem. There were two ACL tears on the women's team every year that I played at NC State, at least. It's crazy, and it's because the amount that they're playing and one specific muscle. So when you get kids to focus on just one sport, they're doing the same mm -hmm. type of movements earlier and way too often. So the way they have them playing right now, in the long run, could be a hindrance to some players. Because if you get these players that you blow out your knee at 12, can you imagine if you blow out the other one at like 17? You're done. That's my point. They can't do high school sports, and I think a lot of that, I mean, a lot of it is camaraderie, especially when you do your high school stuff. That's just for social. I mean, girls need some sort of social outlet. And guys, they can separate so they can compete and then... Be friends. Yeah. Women can't do that. Yeah, I had that discussion with Kevin. He said uh, the difference between... He coaches boys too. Mm -hmm. The difference between girls and boys is that boys feel good if they play good. Girls have to feel good to, to play, play good. good. Correct. Your observation too? Even at the highest level? I think you still have some of that. It's hard if you tear a woman down over and over again. At some point, she's going to start believing what you're saying. you got to deal with women differently than you deal with guys. Okay, so how, how is the U.S. dealing with a talent like Crystal Dunn? I think she's the future women's soccer in this country. She needs to have a number 10 on her back. The team needs to be built around her. Oh, you can't speak on it, but you're, you're giving me a thumbs up there. Do you think that's going to happen? Because again... No. you said this about Dorrance, right? He said that he was a little arrogant, and I would love to talk to the guy because the last interview I had with Kevin, Kevin actually has a relationship with a guy, I work with Ants in his office. I pay attention to subtle things, subtle things. And it's not racism is a big thing, it's all these little subtle things that people don't think about. And I forgot the phrase you used when we started this conversation, but it's like, you know it, but you're not aware that you're aware of it. So here, here's something that Dorrance said when describing why he brought both Kim Crabb and Sandy Gordon on the team. These were his words, it's a quote. He brought Gordon on for pace, courage, tenacity, and that she was incredibly intimidating. 
She bought crab on because she was vicious into the tackle and had tremendous pace. I'm sorry, but as a black man in this country and a black soccer player, that's coded language to me. That is a very coded language. It's this idea of this black aggression, viciousness, yes. just as not animals, but you're these super aggressive people, and we're going to use you only for that. Right. And I think that's why they try. That's what they try to do to Crystal Dunn. And hopefully she's not allowing it to happen because she's a baller. Right. I'm sorry to say this, but. I didn't know Kristen Press was black. She's mi- she looks mixed, but I don't, I'm not impressed with her. She's no, no technical skills whatsoever. If, if this is the girl that I'm thinking about, she goes down the sidelines and she tries to cross the ball. Half the time she doesn't get it where it belongs and she has no technical skills whatsoever. She has speed. Well, That's you it. you said Kristen Press, I know who she is, but I was like, not impressed. in my mind, when you said her name, I was like, wait a minute. Right. I was still trying I to thought go, so. I, I was like, so she's too. black? I did not Crystal know Dunn is the only one you can look at on the national team and well, phenotypically. So she again, work. you have a double problem with women's soccer because not only is it based on they need someone marketable. So you need to look a certain way. I'm sorry, Alex, what's your you name? She's not a great to. soccer player. I'll say it. I'll say it. You can't, but I'll say it. Alex Morgan is not a soccer player. She's an athlete. She's a fast kid who was faster than everybody growing up. And you look at her, every now and again, there'll be a YouTube video where she'll make somebody, but it'll be by accident. She's not a great technician. Watch France, watch Germany, watch Japan, and then tell me that Alex Morgan, Carly Lloyd, Kristen Press, anybody in that women's national team can actually play some fucking soccer. That's ridiculous. I'll say it. And then I'll talk to Anson or anybody about it and what the issues are moving forward. You can't say it, but I say it. We gotta start some controversy on this podcast. It's my opinion, I'll talk to anybody about that. I don't know what the solution is. I know Anson Doris brought in Indy Cowie, who's like a juggling, yes. and she was brought to UNC. Obviously she can't play soccer or she would be on the team. She can do all these tricks. Then I read an article that Anson had her sort of being like a technical advisor for the team because a lot of the girls came in and they couldn't do the technical skills. Why? Thory, why are we that's not the, well, harping on technical skills for see, the women in this country? That's the problem with the youth system. They don't get that. So what is the national team practice like then? Is it just the assumption well, we're calling you in because you're a great athlete? Well, the assumption is that you already have those skills when you get there. Mm-hmm. So we don't have time to work on that. You know, we're working on tactical. We're, I mean, there's some technical in it, but we're not like we're above that, which should be the case because you have this all this money to put into your youth system, that should be the case, but it's not. So where is it falling on its face? So there's a deficiency in women's soccer. I fear for Crystal Dunn. I hope she gets a chance to put the number 10 10 jersey on. Um, What are your thoughts moving forward in women's soccer? Because again, the numbers say that there are more women playing, more black women specifically, attributed to the rise of the black middle class. That you said you were in a suburb in Maryland and more black folks are moving to the suburbs. More black folks are getting some affluence. So when you're in the suburbs, what the hell are you gonna do? You can play soccer. And so we're seeing the rise of that now and it's filtering up. We talk about, I don't know if we mentioned it on here, we talk about, I think it's the 2016 
College Cup Final, USC versus West Virginia, there were nine of the 22 players in the field were black. And then in the women's draft the following year, five out of the top 10 players selected were black. So there's a turn coming. There's a turn coming. I almost get the sense that it's like baseball was when Jackie Robinson, you know what I mean? Like it can't be denied. You give me that 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 mean face like, come on, Aranda, you know, you know there's gonna be some other forces at play here. Am I looking at a tide that's rising that they can't deny or folks in power who make subjective decisions are gonna find ways of, ah, you can't say it, you can't say it, you can't say it. So let me put it this way, are you hopeful moving forward? We've gotten to a point where now there's what, six? Six on the senior national team. I read somewhere that there's a U20 player of Ethiopian descent. She was captain for the U17 team. She's now playing on the U20 team, so she's rising. There's a U17 black player who's captain in the U17 team. Do you have hope? You know, the Star Wars movie just came out, Solo. <laughs> Do you have hope or are we solo? That's a, that's a soccer reference, by the way. hopeful if I see them selecting different kind of players for different types of roles, black or white. Like, that's what's going to give me hope. Again, if you think that we have the best players that are playing in America on that last World Cup team, I that's, that's subjective. But I'm just saying, that's going to tell you what direction they're going. And until you are going that direction... I'm hoping. I'm hoping Crystal Dunn is, is leading the women's national team as the focal point in the next World Cup cycle. So I'm hopeful, the numbers say we're trending in the right direction, so I'm hopeful that that continues. Now, finally, after all this time, we are gonna talk about March 11th, 1993, an 11-1 win against Trinidad and Tobago in Montreal, Canada, and why, oh why, Thorey? Did you go and grab a fish by the neck? Why did you do it, Thor? But gang gang got the hammer and the wrench. I pull up in that quarter milli off the lot. Oh, now she trying to be friends like I forgot. Show off my diamonds like a sign by the rock. Ain't pushing out his baby's telly by the rock. Hey, yo, I been on. You been con. Bentley tin song. Fendi print song. I mean, I been song. X-Men been song. He keep on dialing Nikki like the Prince song. I been on. First of all, yes, speak on it. My grandparents, uh huh, first ever national team game, they came to this trip. <laughs> so let's just put that out there. And again, I am in the game, and a girl takes down one of our other defenders. It was Carla. Carla Overbeck, yes. As a matter of she fact. She was taken down. Carla was salty, I read. She was a little salty. Yeah, and so then the girl's like standing over her. I run What's over the score there. at this point? Y'all are killing me. I don't me. even know. It's 11-1 in the second half. I Keep run going. over there because I'm like, well, what's going on here? The girl punches me in my face. I took a punch to the face. Not like an accidental swing. A straight punch to the face. So I had the presence of mind to understand that if I punched her back, I'm gonna get thrown out. Mm -hmm. Correct? Correct. 
So I put her in a headlock so she couldn't punch me anymore. So you choked her. Wrestling <laughs> move. Brianna Scurry. And I quote Brianna Scurry. I did not put her. I did Brianna Scurry says, I just remember Thory running like a missile to a melee. The girl was about to punch Carla Overback, and Thory comes flying in from nowhere and grabbed her in a headlock. She punched me before oh. I grabbed her. She punched me first, mm -hmm. so then I grabbed her okay. because I was going to be the peacemaker. Is that right? Correct. Okay. I was like, yeah, problem. I run over there. She punches me, so then I just kindly put kindly. her Put her in a headlock. And I'm told she was wriggling out and she wasn't even moving. You had her well, locked. You had I, her locked. I was moving right and left because then her teammates all started coming. So now I'm like, okay, I'm preparing for whatever. So I have her with one hand. Uh -oh. I have to keep this other hand free in case I have to defend myself. So, needless to say, I was out for two games. <laughs> so you got ejected anyway. Anyway, so I should have punched. Why two games? Why? Yeah, the rest of that game and then the next game. My grandparents that came. And that was the only the red way. card ever in your national team career. Yes, and national team. All right, so I teased the story long enough. That's the story. There is no YouTube video. I'm gonna keep looking. There's no evidence. If I find it's it, I'm gonna burned. post it on the on the podcast description. There's no evidence. There's a lot of other things we could talk about, but it's 12 o'clock now. Do you got to go? No, no, no. Okay. I said 2 o'clock. We did tease about kids of great athletes. The young Michael Jordan, the young Messi, the young Ronaldo, having the expectations from fans to live up to their parents. Now, you have a son. He's seventh grade, so that's what, 13? 12. Yeah, he'll be 13. 12, 13 years old. What's it like watching him? He's a soccer player now. What's it like watching him? And how hard is it to stand back when your natural instinct was to compete at the highest and hardest and the ton of vision, and he might not have that. It's extremely difficult. <laughs> and I also add that your husband played baseball in college. And it's really heartbreaking for him because my son will not pick up a baseball bat. Well, baseball sucks. I said it, yeah. <laughs> Baseball is for old people. It's hard because you see things and you want to tell mm -hmm. them. You want them to be their best. Mm -hmm. So if you see things that's stopping him from being his best you want to just tell him all those things at one time and like look you need to do this you need to do this and then at the same time you want to just say okay well good job but you don't want to say good job if he didn't do a good job right. so when he comes and it's like well how do you think i did i'm like well you know did you give your best effort yes no you did Mm, so you break it down like that. You're honest with him. I am. I said, no. But then what's your standard? As a sports person, I'm always thinking, what is the best 12-year-old I've ever seen? That's what I'm comparing you to. I'm sorry. That's the best you can possibly be. That's what we're aiming for. Well, not if he's not the best. Okay. So my thing is just what he's capable of. Okay. If you don't do what you're capable of, you haven't given your all. I know what you're capable of. So if you let somebody run by you, he won't put the hammer down. He's a nice guy. Yeah, he, he is. He's a nice guy. And you weren't a nice, uh, you weren't a nice What are you trying to say? No, I'm saying you if you're arguing that he's not, what are you I'm not making a statement. Say? I'm not making a statement from my perspective. <laughs> I'm just continuing the thought. If you're saying he's not a nice guy and you recognize that, so he should be playing defense, and you made it to the highest level as a defender in this team, you're saying 
you can't be nice to when play defense. When you step on the field, you're a different person. Like I said before, there are times when there are times when things don't lay the way they're supposed to lay. But regardless, you're supposed to hold your head up high and walk tall. Walk tall. Who wins the NBA trophy this year? I think the Warriors will end up winning. You think Cleveland, Boston beats Cleveland? Or LeBron wins his team? No, I think Cleveland will win. And let me tell you something, LeBron James is really good. I mean, nobody can debate that. He's Oh, they do. There's an entire litany of internet videos out there saying he ain't, which is nonsense. This This is the problem. LeBron, if you're listening to me, this is the problem. First of all, LeBron, thank you very much for listening to Olympic People's <laughs> Podcast. I don't know how you found out about this, but obviously you thought it was quality, and I appreciate you doing this. And reach out to LeBron. When the season's over, I can come to Cleveland. We can do this over the phone. I'll get with Maverick Carter, all the people uninterrupted. By the way, I want a job at uninterrupted. I think it's a great thing. And so, you know, if you're out there, holla at a bruh. Go ahead. <laughs> Listen, I think you're amazing, but you've got to cut out this little floppy stuff. We can't do that. You are above that. I'm 33 years you old, Corey. I've out. been in the league for 15 years. My knees are going. But I'm not, you don't I'm not need... telling you all that, but I'm hurting, Thory. You don't have to fall out. It's and a free act throw, like... It's a free throw. Right. It's going to be a free throw whether you fall out or not. It's a free so throw. So stop falling out. Right, stop it. This is cut TV. it out. This is NBC drama. Cut it TNT. Out. This is drama. You know TNT is all about drama. <laughs> so this is all about cut drama. It out. I, LeBron, like I said, the, the views of uh, Thory Stables are all <laughs> If you want to come on my podcast and talk, Talk to me about flip, flopping, pancakes, flapjacks, whatever you want to, bro. But still, I'm I think here. you're amazing. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So we'll, we'll 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 end there. I think I know the answer, but again, and we we've kind of touched on it. What is what no? What is your thought about the future of women's soccer in this country, specifically at the national team level, and then incorporating black women? Like I said, we have everything we need to be great, like dominant and great. It's just a matter of if the people that are not actually on the field, the people making the decisions, if they can all get on one page about the end game, then I think we'll start to see a program that will be like dominant again. But until that happens, I'm not sure. There's hope. I think there's hope. If we can just look at the big picture, you know, people will be surprised. The talent is there. All right, and again, Thori, thank you very much for you know taking the time to, and uh, they don't know this, but now we're gonna talk about some real shit. But, uh, <laughs> but no, thank you very much for telling the story you know, of your experience in women's soccer. I think, again, the game has come a long way, obviously, from when you were growing up to being solo on the team. Now we count, I think there's six or seven players who are on the senior team. Hopefully they're there for all the right reasons, and, and hopefully the system uses their abilities and keeps developing their abilities as far as they can take them because I think it's the, it's the future of soccer in this country. My friend Joel says it, just give black folks a chance at any sport that we'll do to any sport, what we did to the NFL or what we, do, what we did to basketball, we'll take over. Athleticism can't be denied, they bred us to be better athletes, so we're gonna be better athletes. And then just teach us the skills. This is the thing, any dominant professional they have the internal drive to do it. All you gotta do is teach them how. That's it. Doesn't matter if it's athletics or anything. Just teach them how. They already have something in them 
that's motivating them. Teach them the one, two, threes, the X, Y, Zs, and they're gonna get it done. So you are that person, and there are tons of folks out there. Black soccer's rising, so if anybody wants to be the next story. Maybe I should pray a little harder, work a little smarter. This time, baby, promise I have learned my lesson. Thank that you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. And we'll see you next time on the Ubuntu People's Podcast. In the meantime, visit us on Podomatic, on iTunes, on the Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us, comment, let this momentum build. I want you to come back, but for now, we are out. You do you eat, then, oh, I, I, do do you eat, then, oh, I'm alive. Do do you eat,